I'm Bert Cohen. Welcome to Portside. And, of course, we are living in the USA where it's everybody's dream, or at least a lot of people's dream, to get married and live happily ever after the end. Doesn't always work that way. Marriage, what a concept, what an institution. It's uh, been in the news a lot lately, uh, the idea of marriage, the institution of marriage, and uh, there's this whole new gays getting married, equality situation that seems to be sweeping the country. Tremendous demand for gay people, men and women, to have equal rights to be able to marry. And as, uh, oh, I'm not sure who said it, but uh, sure, they can be uh, as miserable as the rest of us. And uh, there's been a lot of prominent adulteries lately in the news, especially in social conservative circles, And I'm very pleased to have with us uh, for a look at the institution of marriage itself, Amanda Marcotte. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. Well, uh, Amanda is author of It's a Jungle Out There, the Feminist Survival Guide to Politically Inhospitable Environments. And she has a new article in RH Reality Check, which is Reproductive Health Reality Check, information and analysis for reproductive health and the title of the article is certainly a grabber it says for many marriage is sexless boring and oppressive time to rethink the institution question mark uh you say that uh marriage is often oppressive soul-sucking and passionless and boring what is your purpose in writing this article well, um, you know, mostly to get people talking. Um, you know, obviously, it's not true that everybody's marriage feels oppressive and sexless. <laughs> but, you know, I think um, a lot of people do feel that way, and our culture romanticizes marriage so much that they don't feel like anyone's talking about their experiences. And even so, 50% of marriages in this country end in divorce. I think that people that are stuck in failing marriages often feel very alone. And so I thought, I'm just going to go out there and make the case that um, we should probably stop romanticizing marriage and start talking about all the things that are wrong with it. Now, you know, I'm not married and I don't intend to marry, so those are my cards on the table. So I'm maybe not the, you know, the most fond person of the institution, but, um, you know, I was looking for to be a kind and generous person initially (laughs) when I wrote that. Well, why did you feel like you had to be a kind and generous person? Well, no, just basically to talk about, you know, the unspoken story. And I think that there are a lot of people out there that, you know, feel like they don't have a lot of options, that they have to be married, that that's just what it is. And we don't talk about you know, questioning it and giving people more social space to to set out on their own path and decide what's best for them. And, um, yeah, you I th- know... I think that's an interesting point. Uh, we don't leave a lot of space for people to live their own lives and decide what's next for them. 
there's this incredible programming that happens. Then I understand it's it's probably more so in these currently United States that uh, there's this tremendous pressure to get married. And I wonder how much of it is cultural and how much of it may be uh, innate from birth. And, you know, is it nature or nurture? I I don't really know. I know that my eight-year-old daughter is just fascinated with wedding gowns and, and that whole, you know, shtick. And I'm sure you've known a lot of girls like that, that, you know, it just looks like this. Uh, it's so idealized. Fairy tales, getting married and being you know, living happily ever after. And I know as as a boy growing up in America, there was certainly uh, pressure on me, certainly from my family, from the culture in general. I'm trying to find a quote from Benjamin Franklin here. He, he said something about, uh, let me see if I can find it, that uh, a marriage... Uh, where is it now? That a marriage, a man who's not married is only half a man. And, you know, these hard, hard pressures, and people feel really badly if if they're not married, that, oh, is there something wrong with me? And that is certainly not extending uh, the space, as you say, and the support for people who don't get married. And And I wonder how that may be affecting uh, Americans as individuals and as an institution, marriage as an institution? Well, I think that what we see is a lot of people get married without thinking about whether or not that's really the right choice for them. Which, I mean, you know, to be fair, we often make choices just because we have to try them on before we find out that it doesn't fit. But that, <laughs> you know... <laughs> yeah. Marriage is a big one, and it's just like that. And I, I've often joked that marriage is an extremely front-loaded reward system, especially for women. You know, <laughs> you you get you get all these incentives to get into it to the degree that you have to wonder if it's not just being way oversold. You know, this huge wedding is becoming more and more of a cultural you know mandate. You know, apparently the average price of a wedding now is something like $27,000. That's pretty absurd. You know, and even with the housing bubble the way it was, that's like a down payment on a house. Absolutely. And that's a lot of money, you know, but I think it, 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 people want to do that because it's such an opportunity, especially for the bride, to have it all be about you and your love. And, and that's a very intoxicating idea. I, I've per- certainly felt the pull of that even if I, you know, think that what happens the day after the wedding is that you end up being married and maybe, you know, that's just an entanglement that the only difference to me in being married and not being married emotionally is that it's just harder to get out of the marriage if you don't want to be there anymore. And I don't really see the point of that. Very interesting point. I mean, once you're in there, there's tremendous pressure to stay married, even if it doesn't really work. And, uh, you know, there's so much, it's, it's such a subjective issue. What What is good marriage? What is a not good marriage? Some Somebody could look at one marriage and say, wow, they have a good marriage. And that couple could feel like, yeah, we have a good marriage. Or they could feel like, oh, we have a terrible marriage here. And yet the pressure is really strong to stay in it. And, and I got to tell you, my parents, I'll never forget, they, I went to their 65th wedding anniversary uh, a number of years ago. My mother's still around, but my dad is not. And I remember thinking, what are we celebrating here? This was a lousy marriage. They, they were not really happy. And why is it that we are celebrating this? And I, it's, it's sort of odd to me that, uh, you know, how often whenever you say, oh, I've been married, you know, 40 years, 50 years, congratulations. Wow, that's great. People are celebrating that. Uh, and I, you know, it also, when I first ran for office, I, I didn't win the first time around, but, but when I finally became married, that helped my political career, you know, <laughs> because, you know, I looked more stable, more settled down or something like that. That always bothered me, I have to say. And I, I wonder what, uh, you know, you, you, you must see people celebrating their, their you know, multi decade marriages and I I don't know you know I 
Go ahead. Uh, I always find that very uh, like a really funny tradition because nobody ever stops to think exactly, not just that, like that we're celebrating marriages that may not be happy, but also the act of celebrating an anniversary always struck me as the congratulations, especially as if somebody has survived something. <laughs> and it, yeah, it, it often uh, is like that. Yeah, you celebrate things like graduations and birthdays because somebody's made it this far. <laughs> and <laughs> I just, you know, it seems to me that if marriage is about love and romance, why, why would you celebrate it with these terms that are usually like you worked hard to get to this point? It was a long haul. Well, wasn't it supposed to be fun? Wasn't it supposed to be easy? Um, you know, but we don't actually believe that. We believe that it's it's tough, and I think you know life in general is tough. Why why should even our most private love lives be constructed around work and slogging through it and it being hard? Yes, it's it's true. We are talking with Amanda Marcotte, who has written about uh, marriage. Is it for many? It's sexless, boring, and oppressive. Is it time to rethink the entire institution as people are rushing into that and they continue? To do that, uh, you know, I, I have to say, I remember many years ago, and this will show a bit of my age here, I heard Andrea Dworkin speak, You are, <laughs> and she, I'll never forget, she said, the relationship between a man and a woman is, by its very nature, oppressive. That kind of shook me up. I just thought, whoa, it's often oppressive, you know, but to say by its very nature oppressive, I I had a hard time with that one. I, I thought that was a bit uh, uh, too narrow. And uh, what, what's your reaction to that? Do you think it's, you know, you're, you're certainly writing with a, a feminist uh, point of view here. And she, you know, was in the 80s really making her voice heard, Andrea Dworkin. What do you say about uh, that? Is it by its nature oppressive, do you think? Well, I think Andrea Dworkin's problem is, uh, you know, I think she was brilliant, but um, occasionally she would conflate individual um, choices with structural oppressions, you know, especially when she would say shocking things like that. You know, people hear that, and what they hear is, you can't, you personally will always be a screw-up. And that's, you know, that's not how to get to people. What I think she was getting at, though, was, Every, you know, heterosexuality is constructed in our culture, especially when it comes to marriage, as an institution where men dominate women. And, you know, that goes right up to things like women have to name themselves after their husbands when they get married. Uh, I... Now, you can opt out of that, but the fact that you have to opt out of it is in and of itself hmm. an oppression. And then everybody's going to bug you about it. <laughs> uh, you know, I think what um, good men and women can do is that they can try to struggle against the uh, oppressive structures that's already built into our society. But, you know, know that you're going to fail probably sometimes and pick yourself up and keep going. But I've, I can definitely say that the most feminist you know, heterosexual relationships I've been in or around still have these kind of default moments where, you know, men are just allowed to have more power than women. Yes, that, that has happened often. And I, I could never quite figure out about the women taking the man's last name. Why don't they keep their own name? And I remember actually as a little kid, I, I saw my mother sign something, Mrs. Martin Cohen. And I thought, that's not your name. <laughs> Your name is Alice. You know, I, but you don't see that much anymore, people signing their names, you know, Mrs. Man's name. You know, I, that hasn't happened much. And, uh, you know, it, it's, it's, you know, marriage is supposedly for life, and yet we have uh, tremendous turnover here, more than most countries, I believe, that uh, there, there's higher turnover in uh, American marriage than uh, in uh, most European or other Western nations, and yet we are the most fiercely dedicated to preserving the institution and protecting the institution and and putting it, you know, on a pedestal that that marriage is is so important. Yet here we have these high-profile uh, cases of, 
I guess it would be called cheating or straying, whatever, that, uh, uh, let's see, Governor Mark Sanford, Senator John Ensign, and I think one of the uh, biggest factors there is the hypocrisy. I mean, that's such clear hypocrisy saying family values, family values. I know what family value is. And you, the American public, you have to accept what I tell you it is. And then, of course, they don't do it themselves. And I wonder, you know, is, is, this, uh, is this just setting us up for, for failure? The old saying, you know, getting set up for, for upset here. And there's the whole thing about how marriage came into being. And uh, let's see, Sandra Singh Lowe, who's a dark comic, uh, has written about her divorce recently, and you, you quote that quite a bit. She says, uh, sure, it makes sense to agrarian families, you know, families that lived on a farm before 1900 went to farm the land. One needed two spouses, grandparents, and a raft of children. But now that we have white-collar work and washing machines and our life expectancy is shot from 47 to 77, isn't the idea of lifelong marriage obsolete? So I guess, you know, it's a question of when marriage was instituted, people didn't live that long. And you just kind of needed it to work the farm and to to keep the species going. Uh, How much of a factor is, is that, do you think? And what do you know about the history of marriage? It hasn't been around forever, has it? Well, it's a really, really complex history, and one of the most interesting writers to read about it is Stephanie Kuntz. She's a historian who's written a number of books on families and marriage and about how these uh, ideals from the past were never lived in the way that people seem to think that they were. Um, And yes, marriages did not actually last that long in most of history because somebody often died before they had much of a chance to last very long. And divorce has been around on and off throughout history. But I think one of the things that confuses people the most is that our idea of what marriage is is borrowed from the people who have written most of history, which were the upper classes of any society that they were in, at least, you know, throughout Western civilization. And their ideas of marriage were about securing property and family alliances and all these things that poor people didn't have nearly as much interest in. And now Americans kind of like to think of ourselves as a classless society, and yet all our ideas about what a marriage is supposed to be are still borrowed from, you know, Victorian royalty ideas, including the big lavish wedding And it's a model that doesn't fit for us, you know, these lifelong, you know, marriages where, you know, the royal families that insisted upon them and where divorce and separation was just not done, you also got to live in separate chambers in a big old castle, so. (laughs) That's true. That's true. That's an interesting point about the image, and and I know that uh, it just observing my my eight year old daughter, the youngest, that uh, it's it's like something out of uh, a fantasy of of medieval times, really, where there was a royal, <clears throat> excuse me, a royal family, and uh, marriage was often a very political thing to to unite two powerful, politically powerful families, you know, to make sure that they married somebody else who is politically powerful. And that was the situation for centuries, I'm sure, that that these big fancy marriages joined together two super powerful families and kept that power in place. It, I hadn't really thought about that. And the image that you get of this, uh, you know, the, the, the wedding cake with all its frills and sort of castle-like sort of the, the Disney image, uh, yeah, it makes sense that that may be where it come from. And yet... Uh, uh, sociologist Andrew Churlin wrote uh, in The Marriage Go Round, The State of Marriage and the Family in America Today. He said, the one thing that unites the poor and the middle class in their hopes for family life is the imperishable dream of being married forever, grabbing hold of that golden ring of lasting partnership. It does sort of work sometimes. And, you know, I, it's, it's all so subjective. I wonder how one can really measure because there's no real uh, uh, absolute objective standards of what is good and what is not good. I wonder how 
one determines if a marriage works. What, what's your research told you about determining if a marriage works, if it's worth working on? Well, you know, I think that if we, I think that the longevity standard that it lasts uh, until you die um, is easy for people because it's easy to measure. But like you said earlier, you know, we celebrate unhappy long marriages the same way we celebrate happy long yes, marriages. For sure. And so obviously that's an inadequate standard. I think, you know, I would like it if people started to see institutions as things that are for us instead of we exist for institutions. Mm. And so, you know, if marriage makes you if your marriage is happy, you know, good for you. But I think that that should be the standard. And um, I have to wonder, you know, why why people are... I, I guess I understand why people are so afraid of it ending at some point in time. Nobody enjoys breaking up with somebody. Right, Loss right. is always hard. But I don't necessarily see, with our high divorce rate, that getting married makes that any better. In fact, in a lot of ways, the high probability of divorce sort of, if you're going to end up breaking up with somebody anyway, I often wonder why make it even more difficult? You know, why drag it out even further? And I guess people's thought is that, well, if you're married, you're less likely the obstacles to breaking up will keep you from breaking up. But then again, all I see is then you've set up a situation where you're more likely to be stuck in an unhappy situation. Hmm, interesting. And I can see how people might feel like, uh, well, the way you put it, um, it's a good picture that it's like a, it can become a heavy institution that we, we as individuals have to lift and carry with us, you know, as very heavy baggage it could be, like, and the idea of the prospect of getting out of this institution where the rest of society says, institution, good, live within institution. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it, the idea of getting out of it, uh, you know, there's a lot, a lot of pressure to stay in it, even if it's, if it's not real happy. And yet, on the other side, it, it, it's tough on kids. It's, there's no question that, that breaking up can be tough on kids. And if one assumes that this species should be preserved, if... And and that, you know, that, that means reproducing and having kids. And, and some people, I know at the, the gay marriage debate here in, uh, in New Hampshire in the legislature, there were people on the hard right who would say that marriage is, is for, well, they wouldn't say breeding exactly. They say, you know, having kids, that is the purpose of marriage. A lot of people certainly disagree with that. There's a lot of people that get married just because they want to be, uh, you know, in some secure relationship and it is scary to to get out of it it's it and i wonder about this fear given that that the institution is so powerful it's such a you know strong cultural belief and institution how much a, a, of a factor is fear fear of getting out fear of what it'll do to the kids fear of being too selfish what do you think about that selfish idea and the, and the whole fear factor? Well, I think that there is definitely a lot to it. So I I often reject the word selfish because it, I see it being thrown a lot of the time at women to get them to comply to the standards of behavior that I don't necessarily see are less self or less or more selfless. You know, for instance, you're often told that uh, a woman who gets an abortion is being selfish, and I don't understand uh, that because a lot of the time she's doing it for her children. She's doing it for, you know, for the correct reasons because she doesn't want to be a burden on her family and her, pre, you know, her already existing children. And I, I see the same kind of dialogue around divorce. You know, people say it's selfish, but... What kind of signal, if especially if you have children, but what kind of signal are you sending your children if you, like a lot of under, unhappy couples, are constantly fighting? Um, don't model to your children what a happy adulthood looks like. Oh, Instead, yes. send them the signal that they, like you, have to 
be unhappy and hold up this institution, at what point does the cycle break? You know, if we want to do things for the children, I think a lot of the best thing we can do is give them freedom to be happy when they are adults. Ah, now there's a scary concept, freedom. <laughs> That's what people really, I do think, care about, and, and being free from institutions. And I imagine a lot of people feel like they're stuck in a prison, that marriage can sometimes uh, feel like a prison, and, and they want to get out of it. I think it's, it's interesting that the statement, marriage is an outdated institution, was questioned was one of the questions in a poll taken in 2000 and uh the how many people agree in the US when asked do you agree or disagree marriage is an outdated institution in the US t- 10% agreed with that statement marriage is an outdated outdated institution but in France 36% agreed i i, I you know how much of this is an American institution? The Americans marry faster than any other people on the globe. There's just this rush pell-mell uh, to get married. And then I actually think it, it, it goes in phases, you know, thinking about relationships. Uh, there's the first phase. This, this is just my uh, personal sample that there's the first three months, which, hey, we all know what that's like. It's great stuff. Then then there's the next six months, which is a little bit of seeing who this other person is more. It's not all, you know, uh, chocolates and roses. So you get three months and the next six months. Then you get the next 18 months. And then there's a time after that. And it's just, there's this institution, which is definable. And yet there's each individual, which is really not definable, who each one of us is very, very different from the other. So does one size fit all? I, it, it's starting to be questioned there. I wonder what alternatives to marriage there may be. If we're going to have kids, we'll come back to that question. What might be, you know, what else is there besides marriage? That, I guess that's the question now is that, you know, there's either singledom or marriage. You know, marriage is between two people, two adults. Now, you know, obviously the the uh, the ban on uh, gay marriage has pretty much uh, gone away. That that ban on gay marriage certainly, I think, is an outdated institution, and it's you know really going by the wayside everywhere. But uh, does it fit individuals, and and what might the options for be be for reproducing and bringing up the kids? What what kind of things have have you considered? Not you well, personally, not you personally, of course. Um, you know, I think that, well, I think, you know, I think one reason Americans specifically are stuck with marriage and can't think outside of that box is because, unlike a lot of Europeans, we are such a mobile society. We move away from our families much further, you know, and I just, I just took a long trip to Europe and I am always struck when I go there at how people, much more than Americans, are born somewhere they live somewhere, they die somewhere. Their mother is in their neighborhood. And I think that that makes not being married a much easier situation if you want to have children because you have an extended family unit to lean on and everybody helps raise your children. Now, I might, my impressions of Europe might be wrong, but I think they have a lot more of that going on. Whereas Americans will often not have their mom or their father or their brothers and sisters on hand. They don't have any kind of community to lean on, and so they're stuck. And being just single and raising a kid with no help at all is is really hard, and nobody's denying that. So marriage seems like our best bet. Interesting. Go ahead. You know, it is hard to say what should we do different. Um, Perhaps marriage should be... One thing we've come around to is we're making it a lot easier to get out of marriage. Maybe we should just continue to look in that direction. Maybe people would be a lot more willing to do things if they could. Maybe it would be easier all around if people began to think of marriage as a possibly temporary situation instead of fantasizing about it lasting forever. Yeah, and the idea of of if it uh, falls apart, my marriage failed. My marriage failed, or I failed. 
a lot of people, I think, feel that, that if their marriage doesn't last forever, that they they are a failure. And boy, what does that say? I think you made a very, very interesting point about about uh, Europe, that people stay uh, in the same proximity. I think that's a very, very good point. The mobile society in America is quite unique, I believe, and that may be one of the biggest factors that, you know, we think how fantastic it is and how rare it is for uh, a young family to have uh, parents around, their parents around, so that they can, you know, it's wonderful for the grandparents and it's great for the kids, generally, if uh, they can see their their uh, their mother's parents or their father's parents and have that support system there. And there are other cultures in other parts of the world where it takes a village to raise a child. You know, it really, it really, really does. That the, the whole village is involved with all the children of the village. Not just school, school is a part of that, but, but each child knows they belong to that village. And when uh, my ancestors left uh, what's now Lithuania, and there were shtetls there, communities where people, everybody knew each other, and if a child, you know, everybody would know where the child was. And that was really, I think, a good thing. And in, in parts of uh, what's now the state of Israel, there have been uh, kibbutzim for a long time. Again, having the village raise the child, that each child doesn't just have the parents' institution, but, but has the freedom to interact with other children, not just the one or two other kids in the family, but a whole bunch of other kids. And I'm thinking maybe a lot of kids might actually like that, and that that may be a new answer, maybe an old answer. I kind of grew up a little bit, especially when I was a young kid, like that. Everybody in my family lived within a couple miles of each other. And we were always, always, always together as an extended family. And, you know, only now as an adult do I realize that that's a rare and increasingly rare thing. And I wonder if people can't live with their uh, actual families, why, why do they have to disappear from their kind of new, you know, networks of friends when they get married and have children? Um, I think that it would be nice. I think a lot of people would benefit if our culture had some kind of space in it for something similar to what they do in Israel, where people can rely on networks of of non-kin friends. And even in the the last depression, the Great Depression in the 30s, uh, there were uh, work camps that were set up by the government and you know people worked on jobs there they were taken from you know no job or anything and they they all lived together and it was a wonderful village where people knew where their kids were the kids could play safely play in their neighborhood and that was uh their support system we're talking with amanda marcotte author of an article called for many marriages sexless boring and oppressive time to rethink the institution uh, and and we might as well get to the subject of sex in marriage. You know, some people, uh, I've heard it said that, uh, you know, once you get married, forget about it. That's the end of it there. <laughs> but that doesn't always happen. And, you, you know, there's, I, I've looked at, uh, you know, I, I've seen firsthand a lot of people on the hard right, the social conservatives, if you want to be so nice as to call them that. I could think of other words to describe them. But up at the hearing at the state house in Concord, the people against gay marriage were just absolutely obsessed, just terrified and and hate driven to keep gay people out of marriage. I'm trying to figure out one person suggested why they're so against gay marriage. What they're so afraid of is that a lot of the men think that oh, if their wives are free, they'll go out with other women. I, <laughs> <laughs> that may be the case. I don't know. But but my impression of, of gay marriage opponents is that they absolutely flip out at the idea that someone somewhere may be having fun. <laughs> <laughs> and and they're not having fun. And I, have, you know, you draw 
you, you get a sample of, of a large part of the people who are against gay marriage are the same people who are against abortion. My impression, once again, is that, you know, it's not about saving babies for a lot of them. Mostly, they don't want people having sex and not being burdened with babies. Again, somebody somewhere may be having fun. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I mean, what, what is your take of why people are, are so afraid of other people, you know, gay people getting married and, you know, having the same option that, that straight people have had for, for so long? Do you have any read of that? It's been baffling to me. I think I think your read on it is right. I think that there is a real. I think that um, they want to preserve, yeah, the sexless marriage. Right. <laughs> and it's kind of sad. Unfortunately, in a lot of ways, that that horse has already left the barn. You know, <laughs> um, straight people embraced sexual experimentation a long time ago, and. <laughs> And and they and people are quite fond of finding fun uh, ways to keep the spark alive inside of marriage, and for that I commend them. And I don't think that allowing gay people into the institution is going to change that one way or the other. But I do think that you're right that and I, this Mark Sanford situation really drove this home to me: is how much social conservatism is about using marriage as a tool to repress and control sexual, you know, urges uh, and, yes. and fun. And, and Mark Sanford acts like a man who has been deprived his whole life and finally knew what fun was like. <sighs> and boy, he's paying a price for it. That's what <laughs> happens. See, that's what happens. Ah, if you stray, if you get out of your marriage, oh boy, you're going to be uh, shunned by the community here. And so it, it's interesting how these people who are, you know, so, you know, you got to take my family values, whether you like it or not, and yet they they want the freedom too. They want a little bit of a taste of, of happiness. And I wonder about men and women, how much of this is, is nature and nurture. Uh, you know, the, the, uh, the images that uh, little girls fantasize about marriage and Prince Charming coming along on a white horse, it's, it seems to be you know, a very, very old uh, myth and image and living happily ever after. I don't know how many boys get that, that same fantasy. And, uh, you know, there's also that uh, uh, people, if, if they're having difficult marriages... You know, the women are advised to work on it, you know, try to rekindle the spark and, and the love life. But I don't see marriage uh, or men rather getting that that same messages, that, that same message that, uh, you know, women's magazines exhort women to rekindle the romance. You rarely see men's magazines exhorting men to rekindle that romance. What do you make of that? Is that nature or nurture? Or something between. Um, I think it's nurture. Um, I don't think that there's anything inherently. Um, I, what I, as a feminist, I would say what those two things—the little girls and their princess fantasies—and women always being told that it's their job to to keep the sex going, to keep the spark alive. Is in both cases, women are being told that their role is to sort of kind of perform. For men, I think right to be, be vessels, to be pretty, to be you know objectified, and not that I have a problem with being pretty or trying to, you know, do you know be inventive and have fun. It's just that all of that pressure is on women, and what we're seeing women do is respond to a, a gender role that's set out for them. I don't think there's any reason to believe that that's what women want to do. I think women sort of left to their own devices don't cast around hoping that some man will look for them so that they can look at them so that they can be pretty. I think a lot of women actually feel like being left alone on occasion is a relief from the hard work that they're expected to do. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Interesting point. Interesting point. I wonder how, uh, 
again, if you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here on Portside. We're talking with Amanda Marcotte, author of For Many, Marriage is Sexless, Boring and Impressive, Time to Rethink the Institution, question mark. And it certainly is can be oppressive on men just as, as much on women, although, uh, I don't know, men don't usually wear as much makeup as, as women <laughs> seem to do, which doesn't look like fun to me, but I, maybe it's fun. I don't know. I'm a straight man. What do I know? But uh, I wonder how often parents stay together for the children, for the children. And, and not to be a little that because, you know, there's a lot of research to indicate that it is better for children to, uh, to have two parents. Uh, Sarah McLanahan wrote in 1994, growing up with a single parent, what hurts, what helps. She said, children who grow up in a household with only one biological parent are worse off on average than children who grow up in a household with both of their biological parents. I guess that comes back to the question of, of, of support system and having, you know, a mattress, a cushion you can fall back on and have a safe place. That's what I think marriage is supposed to be, you know, a safe refuge from the, you know, the, the tough, tough world. And that, uh, you know, if there's just one parent, it is tougher for the kids. But as you say, you know, is it worse for the kids to have parents that are fighting? I wonder how often your assessment is here, how often parents love their children, but don't really love each other and stay together for that and, and what you think the results of that may be if the parents stick together for the kids because they both really love the kids and don't want to miss the kids and don't want the kids missing either one of them, of them. Is that better than splitting up or, I don't know, it's it's a tough one there. What's your take I on it? I don't think, I think that uh, people don't stay together for the children in our society. I think in a few cases, marriages that have lost all their passion, but the two people involved get along very well, um, will stay together for the children. I've definitely had friends who, like, the second they moved out of the house, their parents split up. And you're like, well, that was what was going on in that situation. But I think in most cases, when people really begin to not like each other anymore, how long, like, the, the pressure to stay together for the children will not keep them together, but it might just drag out the end a little bit yeah. longer. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely. Uh, there's this widely held consumption that, and I can't remember where I got this quote, the good among us, the good among us, are the ones who are willing to sacrifice the thrill of a love letter for the betterment of the children. Sacrifice. What's your, what's your comment on that? Maybe I should read that again. The good among us, the ones who are willing to sacrifice the thrill of a love letter for the betterment of the children. That says something about what we're supposed to do and that if we don't sacrifice, then we're not among the good. Sounds rather puritanical. Well, I think, part, you know, that quote, it implies something about why people are single parents that is not true, that they just got bored with their marriage and got out because they wanted to have the excitement of dating again. I I don't believe that. You know, my mother was single for a while. I've, you know, been inside the single parent household. I grew up in it to a large extent. And my mom didn't leave my father because she was bored. She left him because their marriage had failed. They were not happy together anymore. And so when I see that sort of language that implies something that I don't think is even true about why people split up, I, I get a little angry. I, I don't think it's that they're going, you know, I wish somebody would write me a love letter again. They're looking at the person that they're sharing a bed with and thinking, I've got, it's either divorce or I smother you in your sleep. I, I don't have <laughs> a choice. <laughs> <laughs> well, there, there is the, the whole notion of chemistry. You know, a lot of, there, it's just something that, it's actually, there, there's a lot of scientific research now indicating that there actually is some, some genuine chemistry in the brain that attracts one person to another and that, Maybe the chemistry is there in the beginning. There's this tremendous, uh, you know, rush of whatever the heck it is, hormones, or I don't know what it is, but you, we know what we're what we're talking about here. And then maybe that just 
goes away, that that chemistry goes away. I wonder how possible it is to to re-spark that. It's, I, I don't know. Sometimes it happens, sometimes it doesn't. We're talking about, about marriage as an institution, and I wonder if uh, expectations are just too high. Uh, I wonder if expectations perhaps simply should become more realistic, or does that threaten the institution itself? Your thoughts? Um, you know, I saw you hear a lot of people say we need to lower expectations to preserve the institution, but I don't really see that that that's going to work. In fact, if you take a look at what our society's actually done to preserve the institution of marriage, we've been steadily raising expectations. The the wedding situation has gotten more out of control, more romanticized. I mean, there's entire channels on television dedicated to it. So, obviously, to get people to get married, we as a society have kind of agreed that we need to raise expectations to put everything on it. And I also think that people are very busy. They have to work really hard. They live in these spread-out communities, and they don't have much of a social life. And so it becomes sort of inevitable that we expect our partner, and this is kind of true if you're married or not, but even more so if you're married, to be everything to you because you don't even get to see other people that often. And so I think, yeah, it's great to talk about lowering expectations, but we need to talk about what that would mean, and it means two things. Fewer people are going to get married, and we have to think hard, long and hard about what people actually need emotionally from other adults in their life and how many they might need as friends and relatives and why we ask, what, ask everything of our romantic partners. That, I think, is a very interesting point that, that all of us really should learn, that your partner... Uh, cannot be everything. You got to go out there and be social and have other friends and how incredibly unhealthy it is if you look to your partner to complete yourself and to be everything. I mean, your partner may or may not have the same taste in movies or music or whatever, but wouldn't it be nice to get together with somebody who does have the same taste in movies or music and how incredibly oppressive it is if you demand, expect and demand your partner to have this stuff and he or she doesn't have that, boy, that's not a good situation. It, it, it sets things up again for a, a hard time. Now, I, I wonder about, you know, there, there's the whole notion of, uh, of keeping the species going, of preserving the species. People, you know, need to have sex, not just because it's fun and uh, hopefully for everybody it is, uh, but, but to keep, keep the species going. And I wonder about the difference between men and women. I wonder if this is a, if there is a innate, you know, nature of male uh, proclivity to keep his eyes open and to stray. You find you hear that that men do this more than women, and that there was, and and the. the, the primal urge may be to breed to save species from predators. Uh, and, you know, that doesn't necessarily, that urge doesn't necessarily mean staying together for life. There's a lot of species where the man, you know, helps preserve the, the species and then goes off and, and finds other partners and that that's the way of, of keeping the species going. I wonder if uh, it's possible to just accept that and find some way to absorb it. I know that in, in France, quite a few years ago, it was, uh, I believe it was Francois Mitterrand, who at his funeral, his wife sat next to his girlfriend. You know, and maybe maybe that's a way of just saying, okay, this is what men do, some men do, and, you know, there's the it's very old to have the mother of your children and your girlfriend at the same time. Is that can that be accepted or is that just incredibly insulting uh to the to the feminist uh, sensibility? Well, I th- I think um I think the belief that men have more of a strain eye than women um, doesn't have a lot of evidence to back it up, honestly. I think that, yes, men cheat more, 
but only a little bit more. And they do, and women's cheating levels have caught up as women have gotten out of the house more in the past few decades. You know, and really, who are men going to cheat with if women are cheaters too? So, <laughs> um, I, I think that our species is in general. Um, conflicted. I think that most of the scientific evidence shows that we have urges both to be partnered up with somebody and to stray. And that's true of men and women. And and that's just the way it is. I don't know if there's a solution that's going to satisfy those conflicting urges. We just have that conflict in us. I think the closest that we've gotten as Americans is we've kind of sort of accepted serial monogamy, you know, whether you marry or not, people tend to go through a few relationships in their lifetime, and we don't think the lesser of of them for it. What we expect people to do is to go through a few that they don't marry, and then marry, and then just end it, and then um, are surprised when people are unhappy with that solution. Yeah, people, I think, often like to have their cake and eat it, too. Keep the marriage and have something on the side. A little difficult to work in this culture, anyway. (laughs) People don't always accept that. Uh, And I wonder if, uh, you know, there's the term serial monogamy. I wonder, it's it's been argued that humans are programmed not for lifelong monogamy, but serial monogamy. A good friend of mine had what I thought was a brilliant uh, idea, uh, and that is the idea of a five-year renewable contract. You know, when you get married, there's a, you know, it's for benefits and things like that to, to let the state know so they can, you know, tax you correctly and all that stuff. Uh, and I, I wonder about, you know, if there could be a new contract, if this is perhaps one option. I know that when I mention five-year contract, renewable contract to people, they don't always react positively. <laughs> You know, I, it's not, it's a really good idea. I think uh, a five-year renewable contract is a really good idea, but people will reject it because the first thing they're going to think of is just that. They don't want to be in the room five years from now discussing whether or not to renew the contract with their spouse. I suppose. And, and you know, especially if it's just not automatically renewed. Um, people don't really enjoy having state-of-the-relationship talks. But if, you know, maybe that's not innate. Maybe we could actually, as a culture, come around to encouraging people to have state-of-the-relationship talks. And maybe those kind of contracts would encourage people to realize it's not the end of the world if you sit down and you say it's just not working anymore and, and part ways amicably instead of doing what we do now, which is end marriages, more often than not, by acting out. Ew. Yeah, it does get ugly. Acting out. Wow, it's an interesting picture that you paint there. Well, I wonder if there's a... We're we're coming up toward the end of the hour here. I wonder if there's a way to both meet your responsibilities, if you have kids, and pursue happiness and the right to... So maybe not either or, you know, meet your responsibilities or have a right to pursue happiness, but maybe an and in there, that there's more freedom for everybody, that this institution may not be the one size that fits all. And uh, there perhaps may be other options there. And and you've said that we, it may not just need a t- little tweak here and there, that we should do away with the enticements to marriage, such as health insurance, visitation rights, tax benefits. Those are some real enticements. Maybe it's a time for more equal rights. What do you think? Absolutely. Because, you know, as much as people like to say that marriage is the best place to raise children, the reality is that a huge percentage, it may be up to half now, of children are not being raised inside marriages. We need to accept the reality and, and look at and quit Quit privileging married people over unmarried people. Health insurance especially should not be tied to marriage. We, you know, universal health care would go a long way in this country to easing the burdens of single parents who are going to exist whether we like it or not, and as well as other things like we should have very simple ways to create relationships the way we want them to be. 
I don't really see why a hospital, for instance, should have a rule that says only family members should visit you. If I go to the hospital and I say, I want my boyfriend to visit me, why should they say no? What, what, what purpose does that serve? Most of the rights that are being attached to marriage need to be rethought because not just because marriage is an outdated institution, but because it's cruel to people that aren't married for whatever reason. Interesting point. Equal rights. That's, I think, perhaps something that's extremely important. And maybe that's an explanation that I hadn't thought of why people might be opposed to single-payer health care, because it would be equal rights for all. <laughs> uh, I don't know. Very interesting subject. How can people uh, track your articles and, uh, and read more of their websites, you might suggest? Um, I write daily at pandagon.net. That's like the Pentagon, but pandas. Ah. <laughs> Much nicer. And I also podcast and write for RH Reality Check. RH Reality Check. Thank you, Amanda Marcotte. Very, very interesting, may I say, stimulating conversation. And uh, we will see what the future holds for the institution of marriage. Thanks so much for being with us today. Thank, thank you. All right. Bert Cohen here. Thanks for listening to another edition of Portside. It's not always easy. Can't say we never tried. Still